You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. I'm Ralph McInerney, and this is a course in St. Thomas Aquinas, the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas lived in the 13th century, a very tumultuous century, filled with intellectual and ecclesiastical and military conflict. He lived from 1225 to 1274. I intend first to give a sketch of his life and his time, and then we'll go on and look at his thought as recorded for us in uh, an enormous number of volumes. Thomas's life, we have sufficient, I think, information about it to get a pretty vivid picture of the kind of man he was and where and how he lived his life. He was born in a little town called Rocaseca, Dry Rock. If you were to come down what was then the Via Latina, the old Roman road, from Rome to Naples, you would have seen then, as you see now, coming down the autostrada from miles away, whether you're coming north or south, high on a mountain, the magnificent white pile of the monastery of Monte Cassino, which figured in Thomas's life. If one went west from the autostrada at about that point, you would come within 20 kilometers to a town, Rocaseca. This is a modern town, and if you stop, you're really not in Thomas's native city. If you turned and looked to the north, there would be a small mountain, and you'd see another town uh, halfway up that mountain, and you might think, there's the town. That's the old town where Thomas lived. Well, we're not quite there yet, because you'd have to go up to the top of that mountain, and if you did, you'd see the ruins of the castle in which Thomas Aquinas was born, in which he lived the first five years of his life. At the age of five, he was taken to the monastery of Monte Cassino to begin his education. And we'll be saying something later about what that consisted of. He stayed at Monte Cassino until about the age of 14. And then, as was to happen later, notably during the uh, Second World War, conflict, military conflict, broke out in the vicinity and it was not considered safe for him to remain there. So he was sent down to the new University of Naples, which had been founded by Frederick II, the emperor who was usually in conflict with the Pope. And Thomas's brothers, military men, were on the side of the emperor against the Pope. It's very confusing for us in many uh, respects now to look back and think of the Pope as a secular as well as a spiritual ruler a man with armies and a man who sent his troops into combat. A little difficult nowadays to think of the Swiss Guard going into combat any place. At the University of Naples, we'll talk later about what sort of an education he confronted there, Thomas met members of a new religious order, one that had been founded by St. Dominic, the Spaniard, the so-called Order of Preachers, but more familiarly known as Dominicans or in the Latin, Domini Canes, and that was sometimes broken up into two words, Domini and Canes, dogs of the Lord. They were a mendicant order like the Franciscans, who had been founded about the same time, and Thomas's family was appalled when, at the age of 19, Thomas joined the Dominican order. 
He then started north with a band of his fellow friars uh, in order to continue his education at Cologne and in Paris. But his family was so irate about his joining this ragtag bunch of dogs of the Lord that they took him into custody. And uh, for a year, he was under house arrest by his family, who were trying to persuade him, not that he shouldn't have a religious vocation, but if he were going to have one, why not go to Monte Cassino? An uncle of his had been abbot at Monte Cassino, and doubtless the family thought that some such elevation as that uh, lay ahead for Thomas. But Thomas was adamant in his Dominican vocation, and after an episode in which his brothers put him to the ultimate test, and introduced a woman of easy virtue into his room, and he drove her from the room, they decided, I suppose, that he was serious. And they let him go, and he rejoined his Dominican friars and went north. Perhaps first to Paris, we're not too sure of this, but what we do know is that he was at Cologne studying with the great German Dominican, Albert the Great. And it was there that Thomas's knowledge of Aristotle, which had, of course, begun at Monte Cassino and then expanded enormously at Naples was consolidated. Albert was one of the great students of Aristotle in the 13th century. Indeed, he wrote a paraphrase of the whole Aristotelian corpus. After Cologne, Thomas went to the University of Paris, and there he began and completed his work for the Masters of Theology. After that, he was given one of the regent professorships that the Dominicans held at Paris. They had two. Thomas would have taught at the convent of St. James, the Dominican convent, named for the street on which it stood, the road of St. James, leading to St. James Compostela, a great pilgrimage route in the Middle Ages. Thomas would have lectured in the convent. Students would have come to him. As we'll see, the University of Paris was not an enormous number of buildings put up just for that purpose, but met in such places as the Dominican convent and the cathedral school at Notre Dame and so forth. After a three-year stint as a professor at the University of Paris, Thomas was sent by his order back to Italy. And there's a nine or ten-year period during which we find him at various places in Italy, in Orvieto, for example, in Viterbo. And finally, at the end of those ten years, he is teaching at Santa Sabina in Rome, the great Dominican house, which of course is still there. It's sometimes thought that he was a member of the papal court. The popes were out of Rome because of the military situation and were in semi-exile in Orvieto and Viterbo, little towns north of Rome. Thomas did indeed become quite friendly with Pope Urban IV, but it doesn't seem to be the case that he was actually a member of the papal curia. As I say, at the end of those 10 years, this Italian interlude, Thomas was teaching at the Dominican house at Santa Sabina in uh, Rome. Uh, and from there, he was called back to Paris in an unusual assignment, a second three-year stint as a regent professor of theology at the University of Paris. And for reasons that we will see, this was a very intellectually tumultuous time, and it's doubtless the case that he was brought back there in order to confront difficulties that had arisen because of the influx of the writings of Aristotle in Latin translation. Just an explosion of knowledge that had hitherto been only suspected by those in the Latin West. He taught for three more years, and then in 1272, 
he returned to Italy and to Naples. And it was when he was on a trip from Naples to the council at Lyon, a council had been called there, that Thomas fell ill. And he stayed first with a niece, and then he was moved to the Cistercian Abbey at Fossanova. And it is there that on March 7th, 1274, that he died. The role that Monte Cassino played early in Thomas's life leads us to the larger question of what medieval education consisted in. Uh, and Thomas happens to have existed or lived at a time when a traditional understanding of what medieval education was or what education was, uh, was suddenly disrupted by the introduction of the new learning to which I've already referred. From the Dark Ages, from the time of a man called Cassiodorus Senator, who founded, though a layman, he founded a monastery in Italy called Vivarium and wrote an Instituciones, or Constitution, for those monks, in which he laid out the relationship between secular learning on the one hand and sacred learning on the other. And secular learning was summed up for Cassiodorus summed up in the seven liberal arts. Those arts were divided into a trivium and a quadrivium, a threefold way and a fourfold way. The arts of the trivium were grammar, rhetoric, and logic, and those of the quadrivium, the fourfold way, were arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. Fourfold way, threefold way, ways to what? Ways to wisdom. And where is wisdom to be found in sacred scripture? So the arts were intended to be studied as a propideutic to the study of scripture. This was, we might say, a establishment of a modus vivendi between secular learning and sacred learning that was to last well into the 12th century, where education was considered in this two-leveled fashion what we can acquire by means of our own capacities, natural capacities, what even the pagans had discovered. The liberal arts were studied in terms of certain authors, octores, octoritates, authorities, so that uh, Priscian and Donatus, for example, would be the authors studied for grammar. Aristotle was the author studied for logic, Cicero for rhetoric, and so on. So that uh, the education was largely a matter of assimilating acquisitions from the past. We might think of these as this is the dark ages when this is beginning, where monasteries like Monte Cassino looked like fortifications. And they were placed so that they can be seen from a long distance, but they could also look out and see if any trouble were coming. So that in these very uneasy times, Monasteries were, as it were, the custodians of such fragments as had been shored, fragments of classical learning as had been shored against the ruin of the Roman Empire and the demise of the Roman system of education, which had, of course, spread across Europe, but with the barbarian invasions, that collapsed and disappeared. So that in the Dark Ages, in the monasteries, we're getting a kind of recovery of that learning. But again, what's noteworthy is that classical learning, secular learning, is seen in terms of a complementarity 
with sacred scripture, with the truths that have been revealed to us by God in the Bible. So that this twofold layer, we can surmise, is precisely what Thomas would have been introduced to as a young boy at Monte Cassino. The three R's, the trivium, of course, gives us by derivation the word trivial, as we might say, ABCs. These were the very most elementary first steps of education, but they led on to the arts of the quadrivium and ultimately to the study of the Bible. The education that Thomas was introduced to at Monte Cassino, I'm suggesting then, was the traditional medieval understanding of the relationship between secular learning and sacred learning. So he would have been instructed in the arts. These are fragments of classical thought, of course. As we can look back at the writings of Plato and Aristotle, these few arts that functioned so prominently through the early Middle Ages will seem to us to be a very slender example or sample of what had been achieved in the classical Greek period. But what the medievals could not do from the Dark Ages on was to look at all the writings of Plato and all the writings of Aristotle. One, they weren't just sitting on shelves, and two, they would have been in Greek. A contemporary of Cassiodorus Senator, the man I mentioned who founded the monastery at Vivarium, Boethius had set out to translate into Latin all of the writings of Aristotle and all the writings of Plato. And uh, this tells us something. This tells us that Greek, which was the kind of koine or common language, knowledge of it is fading away. And if that achievement of Greece is to be passed on and understood in Europe, it's going to have to be put into a language that was dominant in Europe now and had been, of course, and that is Latin. Now, this project of Boethius would have been enormous under any circumstances. He was a busy politician as well as a scholar. And as it happens, he did not complete very much at all a few works of Aristotle, so that from the, say, 5th, 6th century on through the 12th, the name Aristotle would have been linked to a logical work such as the categories or the logical work on interpretation, and that would be it. And as far as Plato went, little or nothing was known of Plato directly. There was a partial translation of the dialogue of Plato's called the Timaeus, probably the least typical dialogue of Plato, but that would have been Plato. Now, of course, through the church fathers, Greek and Latin, knowledge of ancient philosophy was gotten indirectly. Book 8, for example, of St. Augustine's City of God is devoted to a sketch of philosophy, and that functioned as information about achievements and sometimes books which were not available in the Middle Ages. So that the liberal arts, as we can see, were just a few fragments of that much greater whole that had been achieved by Plato and Aristotle. But that was it as far as secular learning went, and they were glad to have it. The monastery then became a kind of custodianship or exercise a kind of custodianship of this learning. Now, when we talk about books, we, of course, should remind ourselves that we're talking about manuscripts, that is, handwritten documents, so that if a book were to be had, someone was going to have to sit down and copy it out word for word. And one of the things that was done in monasteries, in a room called the scriptorium, 
was copying manuscripts so that these could be traded with other places for works that one did not have. So you'd get a gradual building up of the library holdings of a monastery by copying, trading, and so forth. You can imagine the possibilities for mistakes in that kind of copying. We don't do this sort of thing anymore with copying machines, but if you ever did sit down and just copy out something by hand, you would probably find that you'd skipped a sentence or that you'd misspelled a word or one kind of mistake or another. And if you think of this as being that copy, being copied, being copied, being copied, and so forth, you can see that over centuries, you could get a very flawed document that would profess to be, say, the categories of Aristotle or on interpretation of Aristotle. It's not until the invention of printing, of course, that we get anything like copies which are identical with the typeset by the printer. But in this older fashion of disseminating learning, there were mistakes and variations in manuscripts which has led to, of course, a great scholarly task in modern times where a scholar will gather together all of the existing extant copies or of a particular work and compare them and try to see which of them derive from which, if that's possible. Often the scholar will end up with, say, six or seven or more copies of the work which don't seem to be derivative from one another. And what he then has to do is to establish a critical edition, that is, what is the best reading of this work, choosing among the variations in the copies that he has. When we read Aristotle, probably do it in English translation, it's done from a Greek text which was established in just this way. But there are gaps of centuries between, say, the lives of Plato and Aristotle and the oldest Greek manuscript of their work. But in the early Middle Ages, the knowledge of Greek all but faded away. Boethius would have been someone who was competent in both languages and could have undertaken and did, in part at least, achieve what he undertook in translating Aristotle into Latin. He also wrote an arithmetic, Boethius did, and a work on music. And these functioned in the arts of the quadrivium in medieval education. My point is that there is something very conservative and traditional about medieval education from the beginning. It's as if one is looking back to a golden age and is trying to retrieve it to the degree that this is possible given the difficulties that I've already mentioned. But all of this is seen, again, in the schema that we find in the Instituciones of Cassiodorus Senator. All of this learning, this secular learning, is seen as subservient to the understanding of scripture and, of course, in the monastery, to the liturgical task. Those choir monks who devoted their lives to the chanting of the hours and the liturgy of the mass in the abbey chapel would, of course, have to be learned or would have to be able to understand and appreciate the text that they were chanting from. And so these were prayers that they were offering up. By and large, as you may know, the Psalms make up the uh, hours of the office, as it was called, the Opus Dei, the work of God, that was the principal prayer life of the monk. And the education in the monastery was, of course, not aimed at just anyone. It was aimed at the formation of these choir monks. But a few children of nobles, such as Thomas Aquinas, would be admitted into 
this monastic school and would live a religious life while they were there, but need not be seen as candidates for membership in the order as such. So the education of Thomas at Monte Cassino, we can surmise, was pretty much the same thing that had been going on from the Dark Ages from the 6th century and Cassiodorus Senator. There were, of course, variations from school to school in terms of which of the arts was emphasized as opposed to the others, and grammar became what we would call literary criticism, so that the Latin classics would be read in grammar under the heading of grammar. So it wasn't just syntax and vocabulary, but it was a matter of textual interpretation of great works of classical literature as well. When Thomas went to Naples, he came into a university situation where all of that was now beginning to crumble. And the reason for the loss of the hegemony, we might say, of the liberal arts was the arrival in Latin translation towards the end of the 12th century and then a veritable flood in the 13th century of treatises of Aristotle. And these were accompanied, and this is terribly important as we will see, these were accompanied by Arabic commentaries by men who were known as Averroes and Avicenna. Uh, so that Aristotle came convoyed. If you see some of these early texts, you'll see a page and Aristotle text will be in the middle and then the commentary will sort of bracket it so that to read Aristotle originally was to read him through the lens of various commentaries. And as I say, this was uh, extremely important for developments that Thomas had to confront in his own life. But what we have to see is the excitement that was generated by the arrival of this, in effect, vast new library of books. Books like the politics of Aristotle, the ethics of Aristotle, the metaphysics of Aristotle, uh, the work on the soul of Aristotle. We can imagine someone saying, where does this fit in our schema of secular learning, the seven liberal arts? It doesn't, they don't. So that there had to be a rethinking of the scope, a recognition of the scope of secular learning as represented chiefly by Aristotle and by the Arabic commentators on Aristotle, and there was no way in which that was going to be able to be fused into the Severn liberal arts, so that the concept of secular learning of philosophy, we might say, is remarkably expanded. And Thomas at Naples, where some of the translation was going on and many of these newly translated texts were coming into use, would have become aware of this expansion of the horizon of secular learning. And it was to characterize his life. I mentioned that when he went north to study with St. Albert in Cologne, he consolidated his knowledge of Aristotle. Well, we can see that in monastic education, he would have become acquainted with some logical writings of Aristotle. When he goes to Naples, these other treatises of Aristotle are suddenly on the table and causing, as you can imagine, great intellectual excitement. When he goes to Cologne, he is working with the great Dominican, Albert the Great, who, as I say, paraphrased the whole of Aristotle in Latin, of course, and just assimilated it in that particular way. Thomas at Cologne was the assistant of Albert the Great Albert commented there on the Nicomachean ethic of Aristotle, 
And the edition that we have of Albert's commentary is said to be the work of his assistant Thomas Aquinas, that is the editing of it. He was later uh, to write his own commentary on the ethics, Thomas was, and it's interesting to compare that of Albert that he edited and his own later commentary. When we uh, talk about the transition from liberal arts tradition to the university, it's better to uh, think of it in terms of the University of Paris rather than of Naples. Paris was the place where Thomas was ultimately educated and where he taught, as I've mentioned, for six years to three years since as a regent professor in the Dominican house in Paris. The 12th century is said to have had the great misfortune of being followed by the 13th century, which pretty well eclipsed it for a long time in the eyes of scholars. And this has been remedied in more recent years and the liveliness and excitement, intellectual excitement of the 12th century is being more and more realized when we think of a century that begins with St. Anselm and takes us through Abelard, Hugh of St. Victor, and John of Salisbury and so forth, we realize that these are men who, if they didn't have to compete with such giants of the 13th century as Bonaventure and Thomas and Scotus and later Occam, they would have loomed larger than they do. John of Salisbury is an interesting case. He was an Englishman who came to Paris to study in the 12th century. And already Paris was a magnet drawing people interested in learning. And if we ask, well, what was going on there? Well, we would have monastic schools, the convent of St. Victor, the Augustinian monks of St. Victor, the order that eventually uh, Martin Luther would belong to, had a house in Paris and great scholars there who drew students from all over. It was on the left bank in the so-called Latin Quarter because Latin was the lingua franca of these scholars who were coming in from all kinds of countries and the teaching and learning was done in this common language rather than in the vernacular. There was also the cathedral school at Notre Dame. When towns began to form and when life settled down to some degree, learning shifted, not entirely, but it shifted to the city around the seat or the chair of the bishop, his cathedra, his cathedral church. And what we had here is a reprise of liberal arts education and the study of scripture at the cathedral school aimed at what training priests for that bishop. So that in Paris in the 12th century, there was the cathedral school at Notre Dame on the Ile de la Cité, the island in the Seine. And then on the left bank, you had these monastic schools. You had on the bridges of Paris, little shops where people taught logic. And I suppose you just leaned over the counter and took a course in logic from someone in this way. It was a very exciting time. And as I say, John of Salisbury has provided us with an account of what it was like to be a student in Paris in the 12th century, and it's indeed very exciting. Now, what happens as we move into the 13th century is that as an organic development out of cathedral and monastic education, the university arises. The university is, first of all, a corporation. It's not a campus, although it was on the left bank, basically. It's not a lot of buildings. It's a universitas magistrorum et scholarum uh, parisiense, the corporation of the masters and students of Paris. So it is a legal entity. 
and it began then to be modeled on the guilds. I mean, students were seen as apprentices who would be apprenticed to a master and then go through a more and more specified set of years of training and reach a point when they would be themselves recognized as masters of the craft. This is the origin of the uh, university as a kind of training ground for future masters. Now, as I have already mentioned, the hegemony of the liberal arts is disturbed by the arrival of this new learning. And the university, from its very inception, from the very reception of its charter from the Pope at the beginning of the 13th century, is a cockpit of conflict and argument, etc., as to the relationship between this new learning, Aristotle in effect, on the one hand, and the Christian faith on the other. The liberal arts tradition had, as I mentioned, established a modus vivendi between reason and faith, between secular learning and sacred learning. All that was now exploded by the arrival of all of these new treatises and commentaries, new ideas, new suggestions as to the analysis of physical objects and the nature of the cosmos, the destiny of man, where did it all come from, and so forth. Here you had in philosophical works by pagan authors, you had answers to these questions that in the liberal arts tradition, they would pretty much have been put off to the study of the Bible. You'd look for answers to those big questions in scripture. Now you had, as it were, a rival teaching on these big questions. What is a human being? What is right? What is wrong? What is the purpose of human life? Is death the end for a human being? How did the cosmos get here? And so forth. In the metaphysics of Aristotle and the physics of Aristotle and his various cosmological work, you have these things discussed. And it looks as if they're, as I say, rivals to the views that were derived previously largely from scripture. So too with respect to morality. The Nicomachean Ethics, which was one of the first of Aristotle's books to be translated into Latin, it's available already in the last quarter of the 12th century, is addressing the question of what is the purpose of human life, and in the light of that purpose, how do we appraise actions as good or bad? Is this something that is compatible with the Christian view of life? Is Aristotle's statements about the cosmos and the first cause of the cause, is that compatible with the teachings derived from sacred scripture? Of course, everyone in the educational system was a clerk, was a cleric, had at least tonsure setting him off from the laity. And this was one of the functions of the incorporating of the masters and students of Paris. It gave them a legal status. They were no longer to be treated simply as citizens in Paris, but they were students of the university. And you have the beginning of town-gown disputes, some of them quite bloody, in the 12th century, when students went out, as students, of course, no longer do, to get drunk and so forth, and run up bills and taverns and to get into fights. If they were students, they would not be able to be arrested by the civil authorities. They would be taken into custody and be judged by members of the university. So that corporation was a very important step for the status of the member of the university. But the more interesting thing is this intellectual conflict 
between, on the one hand, the Christian understanding of what life is all about, on the one hand, and this new and surprising philosophical teaching on such matters. And from the very beginning, that there is a wariness about it. I mentioned as these translations are made, they were made in Toledo in Spain, as well as in other centers, and then came into the centers of learning of the West in translation, and with the results that I've already mentioned several times. This is exciting, and clearly the kind of work that was put into it exhibits that. We have a translation of Averroes commentary on the De Anima that was made at Toledo, and in the preface to it, we realized that there were Jewish scholars and Muslim scholars and Christians in a team, in a translating team, and it looks as if they translated, first of all, into the vernacular Spanish, and then into Latin, and those were the texts that entered into the educational system. Of course, the Arabs had already translated Aristotle into Arabic, so the translation was initially not from the Greek, but from Arabic to perhaps vernacular Spanish, then into Latin. Almost immediately after that kind of translation had begun, translations were made from the original Greek text that had survived. So they get sometimes rival translations of the same work of Aristotle. So it's exciting. When we look at these centers and the effort that went into producing these translations and the eagerness with which people sought to get a hold of copies of them, that flame of excitement, I think, is clearly there. But there was also wariness and uh, deriving from this problem that I've mentioned. How does this comport with what we believe? Because all of these people, as I was about to say a moment ago, all of them were clerics, and that is they're all Christian believers. So this isn't some alien sort of problem that is being visited upon them. It's a problem that would have surged up in them themselves. There were restrictions at Paris in reading Aristotle. And very often this is misunderstood to mean that you couldn't have a copy of Aristotle and you couldn't say in the privacy of your own home or in a plain brown wrapper, say, read the metaphysics of Aristotle. No, no, what that means is that you could not base a course, a lecture course, on the writings of Aristotle. That prohibition was lifted. It was honored more in the breach than in the observance, apparently, but it was lifted uh, eventually. But it tells us of the concern of scholars as to the compatibility of the new learning of writings of Aristotle in all their amplitude, on the one hand, and Christian learning. We might say that this is the central issue in the 13th century. How do we find a new modus vivendi between this expanded sense of secular learning, philosophy now in all of its amplitude? How do we decide what the relationship is between that on the one hand and Christian faith and the interpretation of that faith over the centuries that had become traditional? Well, the central issue uh, then that arose in the 13th century of the arrival of this new learning was how does it compare with what believers believe. And as I say, all the masters and students were Christian believers, so that this was their problem, not somebody else's problem. They addressed it, of course, in somewhat different ways. Some felt that there was clear conflict between teachings of Aristotle and the Christian faith, and consequently, it was a waste of time to mull over what he had to say. The place within the university in which 
the new learning Aristotle would have been studied and lectured on would have been the art scholars. Now, I mentioned that when Thomas went down to the University of Naples, he was 14 years old. People entered the university at that age and they worked towards a master of arts, magister artium, and they did this in a faculty, the kind of entry faculty of the university called the Faculty of Arts. So the very title suggests a kind of effort to suggest continuity with the liberal arts tradition. But that was the setting uh, within which these works would have been, should have been, were dealt with as objects of study and lecture and so forth. Although, as I mentioned, there were restrictions put on this for a time at Paris. And the idea was not that they would simply be ignored, but until one had doped out what the relationship was between these works and the Christian faith, it would be rather difficult to intelligently present them to students. The Faculty of Arts, when one received the Master of Arts, he became eligible to move into one of the higher faculties, and they were three in number, theology, medicine, and law. Different universities became more famous for one of these upper faculties than for others. It should be said that when we see the emergence of the University of Paris out of those 12th century antecedents that I mentioned, the monastic schools and the cathedral school at Notre Dame at the beginning of the 13th century, suddenly all over Europe and with a rapidity that is just astounding, universities were established. Maps have been prepared that show these dots representing universities just spreading across the map of Europe and, of course, into England with the formation of the universities of Oxford and then Cambridge. So this phenomenon is a 13th century phenomenon, and it's spurred on, we might say, as much by this new learning as anything else. But the arena in which this confrontation with the new learning took place would have been principally the art scholars. But for reasons that I will now shortly go into, theologians like Thomas Aquinas became interested in the way in which Aristotle was being viewed by some of the masters of arts at the University of Paris. Now, we can summarize the difficulty that confronted people with respect to the thought of Aristotle in terms of what are called the errors of Aristotle. We're called the errors of Aristotle. And the first one would have had to do with the origin of the world. Aristotle taught that the world had always been, that it made no sense to talk about the world as coming into being, and by way of a change. At any rate, that looks to be flat out contradictory to the revelation in Genesis that in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So you seem to have a contradictory opposition. Either the world is eternal or it is not. Aristotle taught it was eternal. The believer holds on the basis of scripture that it isn't. Therefore, Aristotle must be wrong. Another error had to do with the immortality of the soul. Aristotle was taken by the Arabic commentators of Arawas and Avicenna to be saying when he analyzed human intellection, and said, this is not a material change going on. This is an immaterial or spiritual activity. On that basis, he would say that this intellect or this soul that has such an intellect cannot cease to be, cannot corrupt. 
Now, what Avera was said, Aristotle was saying, was not that your soul and mine uh, will not corrupt. It's not a matter of personal immortality, but that there is a soul somewhere, an intellect that thinks through us without which we could not think. And that is what's immortal or incorruptible. But you and I, presumably, on this understanding, would simply cease to be entirely at death, and that would be the end of it. Well, you can see that this is totally incompatible with Christian belief. The Christian lives his life in the certainty that he will persist in existence beyond this life, and indeed the quality of that future life depends on how he comports himself here and now in this veil of tears. So he's constantly looking ahead to his destiny beyond this life, and it's a personal one. It's not just mankind that will survive, but you and I and all other individual human beings. That's the Christian belief. And Aristotle, on the Averroistic interpretation, is in effect denying that. So of two things, one. I mean, one of those views has to be right and the other wrong. The believer is holding what he holds on the basis of the authority of God revealing. Therefore, he rejects as false this philosophical proposal. And finally, a third one had to do with whether or not God knows the world. And Aristotle, in the 12th book of the Metaphysics, gives a description of God as thought thinking itself. And the suggestion seems to be that it would be demeaning for God to be occupied with things below him. And on this basis, it was taken that he didn't know what was going on in the universe. He didn't want to know. It would have been infradig, so to say, for God to take note of the universe. That on the one hand, and on the other, the Christian belief that his eye is on the sparrow and the very hairs of our head are numbered. We are named by our own name by God and so forth. One of these has to be wrong. Well, these were the problems, among many others, that were raised by the introduction of the writings of Aristotle. And in the arts faculty at Paris, there were bumptious masters of art who wanted to maintain what is called by historians the two-truth theory. There's a lot of dispute about this, but what they clearly seemed to be saying was, it is possible to hold philosophically a certain thing to be true and to hold its opposite to be true on the basis of Christian faith. So that where you had a contradictory opposition, P or not P, they were saying, well, in philosophy, P is true, and in faith for the religious believer, not P is true. Now, this brought theologians like Thomas Aquinas into the fray with great energy. Thomas has a number of polemical works directed precisely against these interpretations. He has a little work on the eternity of the world. He has another one on the uniqueness of intellect. Is there only one mind that thinks through us and, and so forth? And what we will find in Thomas is not that he will see a conflict here where others had seen a conflict. He will, in the case of personal immortality, dispute the Averroistic interpretation of Aristotle. And we see that isn't what the text means. You can't read the text that way, not only in the relevant chapters in the third book of the De Anima, but also the totality of Aristotle's writings on the life world, that interpretation of Avera was is simply wrong. And Thomas, in that little work that I mentioned on the uniqueness of intellect, gives a textual refutation of that interpretation of Aristotle. So what emerges from this is that there isn't a problem. Huh? 
I mean, Aristotle didn't teach something in conflict with the faith. And Thomas will do much the same thing with the question of God's knowledge and will argue that what Aristotle is stressing is that God does not derive his knowledge from creatures as if they were the causes or occasions of his knowledge. And of course, Thomas' creation view would be they are because God thinks of them. And so if he weren't thinking of them, they wouldn't be there. So as an interpretation of Aristotle and then going on with it, as I just indicated, Thomas would not see any big conflict here. The eternity of the world is a much trickier one. There's no doubt that Aristotle thought that the world had always been. There is no doubt that it is Christian belief that the world had a beginning in time, that time had a beginning. In the beginning, God created. And what Thomas suggested here was that the eternity or non-eternity of the world is undecidable on a philosophical basis. And the only way it's decided for us is on the basis of revelation. In accepting the Bible, we accept that the world had a beginning in time. But Thomas's view was, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't know one way or the other. Well, that doesn't seem to address the problem whether Aristotle taught that the world had a beginning in time. But what Thomas would say, either those are probable reasons, that is, there's nothing necessary about them, or if Aristotle thought they were necessary, he was just wrong. So Thomas's reading of Aristotle is a very careful one. And we can see that it's animated by the underlying assumption that there is a complementarity between the new learning and the Christian faith. And one of the great achievements of Thomas Aquinas in all of his writings, that is the totality of them, is to underwrite this assumption that there is no incompatibility between what the human mind can learn about the world and ourselves on its own and what we have been told in Scripture, what Revelation tells us. These are complementary. Sometimes there seems to be a conflict, but it's an apparent conflict if reason is being used properly and not a real conflict. So this is a kind of a charter for the role of secular learning alongside Christian faith, which is a new modus vivendi. We'll be looking at it in some more little detail as we go on. But this is a great achievement of Thomas, and it was done in terms of a great controversy, the Latin of Eroistic controversy. Chesterton, in his little book on St. Thomas Aquinas, the dumb ox, zeroes in on this as the central achievement, and rightly so, of Thomas Aquinas, that he reestablished in a very tumultuous time the complementarity of faith and reason, of secular learning and of sacred learning. We are struck by the fact that a man who was functioning as a theology teacher at Paris during his second stay there from 1269 to 1272 that where he is lecturing and writing, uh, working on the Summa Theologiae, among other things. We'll talk about his writings next time. While he's doing that, he is writing commentaries on 12 works of Aristotle. And this has to be seen as a kind of moonlighting. This wasn't part of his task as a regent master of theology, but it emphasizes or brings home to us how terribly important Thomas saw this problem to be and how important it was to be sure that there was a conflict between philosophy and the faith, not to run to the conclusion that there was such a conflict. 
Of course, what angered him was the suggestion of these young masters in the arts faculty, the so-called Latin Averroist, followers of the Averroistic interpretation on the immortality of the soul. What angered him was the impious suggestion uh, that God would have proposed for our acceptance as true in Revelation something we could know to be false, since we could know it's contradictory in philosophy to be true, if the Latin Averroists were, uh, were right. This is the violation of the most fundamental principle of human thinking, and indeed of, of existence, that you can't have both sides of contradiction simultaneously true, and things cannot exist, be and not be at the same time. This is the underpinning of that logical rule. But the Latin Averroists seemed to have this blithe and insouciant notion that they could hold as true their interpretation of Aristotle, which was in conflict with the faith, and hang on to the faith as well. But again, as I say, Thomas sees this as impious because it would be suggesting that God is saying, believe this even though you know the opposite is true. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.